Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. Uh, This morning, stroke this afternoon, um, it's my enormous pleasure to be talking with Professor Anne Knowles at Maine University. I'm sitting here in Tel Aviv as we speak, so this is a truly transatlantic podcast. And we've got something special for you today. And I know I often say that our podcasts are special. This is really special. So before I even introduce Anne, I want to tell you what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and deconstruct one of Anne's maps in a podcast conversation. Not easy to do because maps are visual and we're going to be talking about it. But we've made it a little bit easier for you to follow. So if you just want to pause the podcast for a moment, go to our website, thegeomob.com podcast slash podcast. You'll find in the show notes a link to download one of Anne's maps, which we're going to be talking about later in the podcast. So put us on pause, go and download the map, and then come back and listen to the rest of the podcast with the map in front of you. Okay, welcome back. So This afternoon, I'm talking to Professor Anne Knowles. Anne is a historical geographer with a special interest in mapping the Holocaust. She's a professor of history at the University of Maine, and she's co-founder of the Holocaust Geographies Collaborative. She says about her work that, as an historical geographer, I'm endlessly interested in the relationship between historical events ways of life, how places evolve, geographic circumstances and spatial connections. I have studied what moved Welsh people to emigrate to the United States, why American entrepreneurs struggled to match the productivity of the British iron industry, and a few of the many geographies of the Holocaust. For me, every study begins with questions of why certain things happened in some places and not others how local conditions influenced people's decisions, and how human actions shaped the built and natural landscape. So that's what Anne says about herself. Now what I say about her. Um, Many of you will have listened to a podcast that I did with James Cheshire um, before the publication of his new book, The Atlas of the Invisible. When I sat down to read that book, near the beginning, there was a map of the Holocaust. And all I can say as a Jew and is that when I saw that, sat and looked at that map and started to read the notes around that map, I was in floods of tears. Um, And then I discovered that that map was based on a map that Anne and one of her colleagues had produced. So the opportunity that I've got now to talk to Anne about a map that moved me so much, and I think will move you a lot, um, is just a fantastic opportunity. So Anne, welcome to the GeoMob podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself, tell our listeners a little bit about your background as a geographer and as a historian, and maybe tell us which came first. (laughs) <laughs> you mean geography or history? Yeah, absolutely. Which was first? Well, they actually entered my life together when I was in my 20s working as a book editor in Chicago. 
I had been uh, a, a lover of literature for all of my reading life. I'd studied literature in, at university, became a book editor, and I was assigned to edit a new U.S. history textbook whose special feature to capture market interest was going to be a series of new maps, thematic maps, to tell the story of history spatially. And this put me as the developmental editor into weekly contact with, it turned out, one of the great historical geographers in the English-speaking world, Michael Thompson. And essentially, I had nine months of private tutorials in historical geography and cartography with this brilliant man at the University of Chicago. At the conclusion, the publication of that beautiful book, I said, how can I do this for the rest of my life? And he said, <laughs> go to graduate school. And so I did. And I became a geographer. What that project did for me, Stephen, was uh, history had never really excited me before. Uh, I didn't want to study it at college, for example, but mapping history made the past vivid and important for me. Um, I guess it was the combination of visual communication with verbal articulation. It was the wedding of those two that made it irresistible to me. And so I really have the zeal of the convert. I went to graduate school at 30. I took my first geography courses at that advanced age and have been doing essentially empirical historical geography through visualization ever since. So I've, I'm going to push you here. Are you a historian or a geographer? I'm a geographer. You're a geographer. Um, and because I see the past, uh, I am, I've become deeply interested in a number of historical subjects. But to be honest with you, reading history does not excite me, but looking at maps always excites me. So my imagination is visual, and I see structures spatially. I see explanations always in geographic context, and that's how I want to communicate, even though I also put a great deal of effort into writing, and I love writing. And I have to rely on others to make the maps that I imagine. Um, so it, they are deeply entangled. Okay. But I do find whenever, for example, when I go to conferences, historians always require the explanation, what is it that I do? They do not automatically understand me where geographers do. So they're my, they're my clan. And I think I'm with the geographers there because as you were saying that, I was thinking, well, geography is a lens onto the past. Um, yes. It's, it's as simple as that, you know, and um, every time I read history, I'm thinking, where was that? Where was that? You know, I mean, you know, if you... You know, as a as a Brit, you know, sort of having an awareness of sort of European history over the last 500 years or so, um, place is everything, you know. I mean, and the place has changed and what was, Aust you know, there was a place called Austro-Hungaria, you know, and all of that. And understanding that is essential to understand history. Um, Absolutely. So I'm with you. But so let's talk about mapping the Holocaust. And I think, you know, I don't want to stretch this, but um, 
you know, we're, we're sitting here recording, having this conversation um, at a time when terrible things are happening in Europe. And I, I, I don't think we should make the comparison to the Holocaust, but it's certainly, it can't be, you know, we can't talk about the Holocaust and not have the, what's going on at the moment in our minds as well. So holding both those things together, why map the Holocaust? I do want to say that I, I agree with you. It is impossible not to be thinking about what happened in Ukraine during the Holocaust as we read about current events. Um, why map the Holocaust? Um, I think I, I answer the, that question differently now than when I began. When I began in 2007-2008 to study the Holocaust geographically, my questions were um, really aiming at discovery of knowledge. For example, how did the SS concentration and labor camp develop over space and time? That was my first question. No one had asked that question before exactly, and we found some answers through data exploration and mapping. But now my quest, my answer to the question, why map the Holocaust, uh, is very different. The Holocaust was, the Holocaust affected far more places and therefore far more people than I think we have realized in the past. Uh, it's one thing to say there were 1,142 ghettos in German-occupied Eastern Europe. It is quite, I mean, even that number is staggering to many people, but to see it mapped, to see the dots all the way from the Vartigal and occupied Czechoslovakia all the way deep into Russian territory and to see an animated map of how the, how the ghettos expanded in 1939-40 in Poland and then the explosion with um the uh, German invasion of, of Soviet territory brings it home to people that this was an enormous event that affected hundreds of thousands and millions of people in so many places. And then when you begin to look at what those places where I'm, I'm focusing on ghettos for the moment, because that's my current focus of study. When you look at the individual places it brings the Holocaust down to the ground of people's lives. And some of what we're discovering through the mapping of the different characteristics of ghettos is that ghettos, I think this will bring new stories to the public, ghettos were much more varied than people have realized, except for the people who have studied them quietly and, and pretty much in isolation in the past. For example, we've discovered that there were only 21 walled ghettos. In most people's imagination, ghettos were walled because that's what Warsaw was, right? Uh, but yep. in fact, it turns out Warsaw is not representative. Warsaw is a great exception as an enormous walled urban ghetto. There were 301 ghettos over this vast territory that were simply ringed with barbed wire. And that suddenly opens up all kinds of new questions about what Jews experienced in those kinds of spaces, how isolated were they, how exposed to the elements. And what our project wants to bring in is not just the mapping, 
but bring testimony into connection with what the mapping begins to reveal about places. I'm sorry, I get carried away talking. No, about no, no, that. you get carried away. Um, yeah, I've just got to stop myself from crying. Um, but no, um, you, you just said something um, which I think um, is really important to explain to our listeners, which is that um, your approach to mapping the Holocaust is very different to the approaches, the cartography that we've seen over the last 30, 50, 40 years. Um, I describe it, I think you may have described it to me, as victim-centric. Um, yes. Can you explain that? Well, our mapping now is victim-centric um, because um, the goal of the current research I'm engaged in on ghettos in German-occupied Eastern Europe um, wants ultimately to tell the stories of victims in the places where they experience the Holocaust. And those places, uh, primarily in our current work, were the ghettos where they were held, where they were starved, where they plotted escape and so on. But there are many other places we hope to get to down the road. Our previous, uh, this, this focus on victims now and trying to understand their place centered experiences, uh, traumatically so, is actually a reaction to the first stage of our work, which is summarized in a book called Geographies of the Holocaust. And the mapping in that book was largely driven by data provided by the perpetrators or persecutors. Um, and that was important to get down to because it, it was the Germans and their allies who had the great power of capturing people in place and transforming those places and creating new places like camps and ghettos uh, in which to hold and exploit and murder them. But we realized over the course of that work, which was based on mapping with GIS, that there were so many silences in our maps. The victims were scarcely there. And we wanted to bring them out of the shadows into the center of our current work. So that's what we've been doing for the past five years or so. And I think um, it just occurs to me that GIS, which is so data-driven, um, it, it can demonstrate the industrial efficiency of the Holocaust um, in much the same way as it possibly could demonstrate um, the correlation of iron and steel production with coal plants and all of that sort of thing that I'm sure you've mapped previously. Um, and it's like it becomes a, the story of a of a production line of death, you know, almost, you know. Um, yeah, we got 100,000 people through this camp in X days sort of thing. You know, I mean, horror stories, but it's, um, you know, I think it's, it's really important when we're doing this, um, when you're mapping the Holocaust. Yes, can I, can I comment on that? Because I think that's a, a very astute um, comment that opens up something I'd like to add to our conversation, um, which is that uh, geographic information systems is such an incredibly useful machine for creating maps and for understanding the world geographically. I've been using it for decades now in my research. 
but there are a couple of fundamental things about GIS that make it inadequate and in fact impoverished for trying to map human experience. One of those things is the mathematical requirement um, of geographic coordinates. Mm -hmm. uh, it is almost impossible not to base in geographic information on the connection to points in space if you use GIS. People who, who design GIS systems are trying to change that, but it's very difficult because it's a mathematical grid underlying everything. So that's one problem. It requires precision. Um, and the second problem is the aesthetic of GIS. Uh, again, you can produce maps in GIS and then redesign them in graphic software to make them look very different, but it's very difficult to shake off entirely the aesthetic of computer-generated graphics that carry with them precision and a kind of cold distance from one subject. I've been trying to, in my work with a wonderful uh, colleague, a former student of mine at Middlebury College, Levi Vesterfeld, who lives in Norway, I've been trying to break through those two problems. Um, the problem of mapping by coordinates drove us to try to find a way to tell the stories that victims recount in their testimony, oral testimony, um, that includes the tiny places where some of the most important events happened, the, the most traumatic or the moments of being saved, which often took place in these survivor accounts in places that the survivors could not tell you the location of. It happened in a forest. It happened after days on a train and they managed to escape and they're in a village and they don't know the name because they don't know the language. You can see the problem right away. Mm. Um, and this is so common in traumatic accounts of any kind, not just the Holocaust. People become disoriented. They uh, don't, especially the more traumatized they are or the more concerned they are about someone they are trying to protect, the less aware they are of their circumstances geographically. So how do you tell the most important stories if you can't pin them to a spot on the map? And what we came up with is what we just call topological mapping, that you can include places topologically that can't be located with geographic coordinates. So you know that the forest was near a town. It actually doesn't matter if it was to the north, northeast or the south, southwest. Place it where you can and include enough information to tell the story. And that we think is good enough and much better to include the story than to give it a false precision that makes it look as if, I mean, it, it begins to create lies about yeah. the nature of the experience. But we're just at the very early stages of this. That was, however, the driving impulse behind our map uh, about Holocaust experience. And you also use um, different symbology, don't you? You try, yes. and, you try and express with the symbology uncertainty and um, just vagueness. That's right. And th this, uh, 
I, I must give enormous thanks to Levy. Uh, Levius is an artist as well as a cartographer and a data scientist. Uh, ever since his youth, he has been a portrait artist who works in pastels. So it was his instinct when we were talking about the problem of the cold precision of GIS aesthetics, it was his instinct to pick up his pastels and start sketching. And even sketching a circle by hand, approximately, brought a whole different um, quality to the map. And I, I was thrilled by this. We both, by the way, think that his pastel circles are just the very beginning of what we ought to do. To me, it's really opened a door onto a whole new set of questions. What other visual and artistic effects can we begin to use in mapping to express uncertainty, the layers of awareness, uh, the cone of, of uh, sort of, you know, when people are in a panic, their vision goes into a sort of tunnel or cone. We yeah. talk about tunnel vision. How can we express that cartographically so that what someone cannot be aware of or is terrified of actually becomes blurred or jagged or, or threatening in color? Um, I think there's a great deal more expressiveness that we can bring to cartography to start sharing what we understand as researchers was people's experience. That There's a kind of necessity to be bold, I think to break out of the straitjacket of precise mapping to become more humanistic in our cartography. Absolutely. absolutely. And I also, looking at the map, um, there's narrative on the map. You know, there's actually, um, I don't know whether it's at, um, transcribed spoken word or diary entries, but there is narrative on the map um, there's a lot of narrative on the map, relatively speaking. Um, and there's also, it's there's place names that are probably pretty accurate. Um, yes. You know, so there is a geographical framework at the back of this map, but very little else. And then there are these these lines and paths and circles which are uncertain and represent places on the journey. And they're all commented with narrative from, from the victims um, yeah. and tell an individual story. They don't give the big picture. They give the micro picture. They give, um, in the case of the map that we're going to look at together, I mean, it's two people's story. It's just two people. Um, that's right. And I think part of part of what Levy and I got thinking about is that there is so much to say. People had so much to say about their passages through the Holocaust. Um, and it, that map, although it does contain a lot of narrative excerpts, these are both oral interviews uh, that people gave in the late 1980s uh, to people, um, Anna Patipa and Jakob Brodman. Um, but we were extremely selective, not wanting to crowd the map with narrative. I'm not sure. I'm curious, Stephen, if you think that those narrative excerpts work. Um, the the map in its uh, native size is about five feet long and, and not quite three feet tall. Uh, we meant it to be displayed on a wall so that people could walk up close to it and read it. 
but do you think those narrative excerpts work in relation to place or is it too fragmented? Um, I think they do work. I mean, I, for me, my first problem is, um, and anybody who's downloaded this map and is looking at this map now, um, I printed this out on six sheets of A4 and that's nothing like big enough and I almost need a magnifying glass um, to to get to, to read the te- to read the narrative in etc. But the thing that I get from this and which is so so powerful is you take Jacob and Anna's stories, right? And they go on a journey and they're held in a camp and they're moved to another place and they're fragments of their memories from their oral testimonies. And actually what the graphics are doing is they are providing a spatial lens to the oral testimony of these two victims. It's not this is a map and we've annotated it. It's completely opposite. It's um, a spatial lens on an oral testimony, which is an amazing thing. And for those of us who who see things this way, we get that sense of a journey. We get the sense of some of the experiences are much more better visualised when they appear roughly in the right place on the map. So, uh, you know, absolutely, it's a powerful technique. Um, I'm not certain how it works in a book, if it works in the book. Um, I mean, you know, yeah. in James's book, when he and Oliver um, reproduced that map and reworked that map, I think they greatly reduced the amount of testimony in the map to get it to be readable and everything. And it was incredibly powerful. So I think the answer is, yes, it does work. I mean, for me, it was fantastic. Um, I also think... I had another question for you, um, which is, do you think that charts and, uh, and graphics are sometimes more effective than um, the maps in pre- presenting some of the perpetrator, persecutor statistics? Definitely. Uh, I think one should... There's a a line from um, a poet and essayist who I read years ago, Guy Davenport. Every every force evolves a form. I think about visualization that way, that one should resist the... One should resist starting with the assumption that you're going to make a map. The important thing is to find the graphic form that best expresses the information. And what that has often meant in my work, this is reflected in the example I'm about to give, is that visualizing information in many, many different ways can be incredibly revealing. So my example is mapping the attacks of uh, German attack squads called Einsatzkommandos in Lithuania. Uh, has taught me so much about what happened in that terrible... I mean, Lithuanian Jews, almost 90 to 95% were killed in a period of about three months. It was just devastating. We, uh, Some students of mine years ago 
created a simple database from a report by a commander of uh, the Einsatzgruppen in Lithuania, uh, Karl Jaeger. Once the data were in a GIS database, then we could begin to visualize it in many different ways. As an animated map of when and where the attacks took place, which gives you an impression of uh, which areas had the greatest number of attacks or just one huge one, uh, how the movement of German troops varied over the country over many months. So that's one kind of impression. Then, of course, you can make a histogram that shows a peak in late August of 1941, which is the beginning of genocide when they're killing everyone, men, women, children, the elderly, and so on. Um, and then the most powerful graphic of all, which I'll try to describe, it's in our book, Geographies of the Holocaust, um, is when that information was charted in Tableau with the place names along the vertical column and the dates along the horizontal. You see, I've never even learned which is the X and Y axis. <laughs> with me. Yeah. And then like strings of beads, if one reads across yeah. the graphic from place, you see when did the attacks occur, how many people, and was it mostly boys and men, which we put in blue, or was it mostly women and children, which is in red? That graphic, like a kind of abacus of genocide, shows the concentration of killing and the turn to genocide by the killing of women and children, which none of the other forms of graphics could show. That has become for me now, a whole, sets a whole new research agenda. How many of the Einsatzgruppen attacks can we map? Can we finally begin to pin down the date when the Nazis turned to genocide, which has been one of the enduring historical questions in Holocaust research. I think people are going to go away from listening to this uh, podcast, Anne, and uh, that phrase, uh, abacus of, of the genocide, is going to stick with them for a long time. It's a very powerful graphic. It's a very powerful graphic. And even just describing it, you know, you get that sense of, this endeavour to completely eliminate um, people in a specific area, you know. Mm -hmm. And you don't need, you know, when you see that list of the towns on the y-axis, you don't need to know where they are or anything. That doesn't add anything to it. Um, what you need to see is um, the scale of, of genocide and the timeline, because some of those timelines, you know, some of those timelines are pretty short, you know, within, within a week or two weeks, um, a, whole, a whole village is completely eliminated. It just occurred to me, Stephen, that graphic should be replicated by the visual journalists working for the New York Times now in Ukraine. Yeah. They should begin showing the atrocities by number, by place, how is it happening over time to show the world it isn't just that civilians are being killed, but look, this is the pattern of genocide being repeated. Or even just, this is war crimes. Forget about the use of genocide. Innocent people are being brutally murdered. Yeah, so and I think, uh, you know, I think if there's anyone from the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Guardian, the Washington Post, all of those, those publications um, who's working on these data-driven stories at the moment... They should go and they should have a look at geographies of the Holocaust just to get some ideas of how you can represent these things. 
in more than just using simple maps. Um, and in fact, my friend Ken Field, who works for Esri in California, has been working um, throughout this current conflict on trying to find ways to map the migrations of people from Ukraine into the surrounding countries. And, you know, the original maps had great big arrows, and the bigger the arrow, the more people were going to Poland and all of that. And it looked like an invasion. It looked yes. like the Ukraine, Ukraine was invading all of the neighbouring countries, you know. Um, and then you occasionally you had small arrows for the Russians invading from the north and the east of Ukraine and big arrows for the people fleeing. You know, it was... Right, and Ken worked on this. And, um, and I was thinking about this before when you were talking because he came up with this idea of just randomly placing small dots to represent people or a cluster of people in the neighbouring countries to show the flow and then somehow graphically showing holes in the landscape of the Ukraine to yes. show the lap. So, in other words, these are the people who weren't there because they're now here sort of thing. Yes. Um, and he did that out in the open with people sort of chucking comments at him saying, you know, that doesn't work because, or would this colour be better than that colour, or change the legend, you know, um, make clear, make extra clear that this isn't precise locations, this is just to show the effect. And, and it was a fantastic process to observe as well, a cartographer working in the open, wrestling with the challenges. Um, and I think, you know, as you said, as we start to, ref, you know, as we start to record and reflect on what's going on in the Ukraine, um, there is a lot that we can learn from the way that we've... Um, mapped uh, what happened in the Holocaust. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, we could go on, Anne, and we could go on just about forever talking about the map that you produced. Um, I, I think there was one other thing that I really wanted and I, to, to just go back to with you, which is this mapping uncertainty. Mm. Um, you know, because your data comes, a lot of your work is coming now from victim um, transcripts, from local data, from all sorts of sources, rather than the sort of industrial death machine data that um, we know so much about. Um, but with that comes a lot of uncertainty. Um, and... Um, I just wonder what you would say to the geographers who have always strived to have accuracy and certainty. Well, um, that was my own training, um, accuracy and certainty. Um, I went to graduate school in the home department of Richard Hartshorn and David Woodward and was trained in classical cartography. But I think actually David Woodward had a, a sort of sideways influence I haven't thought of until this moment. He was a great humanist. He loved John Donne. He was an appreciator of spatial imagination. And 
I don't think David ever insisted on precision for precision's sake. The point for him in, in, the, in studying the history of cartography, his specialty, was to try to understand the world, the imaginative world, the techniques available in any given historical period. What history has to teach us as geographers is that it is absolutely crucial not to treat the past as a use case, as many of my <laughs> friends in GIS tend to say, but to get it as far as one can to understand the circumstances and the frames of mind um, of the people that we're studying in the past. I think doing that, trying to do that, imperfect as it always is, enables one not to think about uncertainty as a condition of life rather than a technical problem. So that's, that's sort of one answer to your question. The other answer is we should collaborate more with artists. We should uh, sketch freely away from the computer. Stepping away from the computer is hugely advantageous for coming up with new ideas. Um, get away from that grid. And then ask, how can the grid serve me? Do I need it at all? I think, in a way, we need to start over. As many creative cartographers are today, um, and make the machine our servant rather than serving its requirements ourselves. And that's a perfect place to finish. Thank you so, so much. Um, I've managed to get through this without bursting into tears. Um, I probably will go and have a little weep afterwards. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's also been so illuminating. Um, I hope that some of my cartographer friends are listening and will go and look at geography of the Holocaust and learn from what you've done because I think over the next couple of years as we start to come to terms with the shock of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. We are going to need some of these techniques and we are going to need to map individuals' testimony, not allow the story to be just told with massive numbers and um, as another you know, list of statistics. We need to actually bring this back to humans. So thank you very, very much, Anne. Um, before we go, I've just remembered that I didn't ask this um, if people want to reach out to you afterwards to ask you questions, what's the best way of getting in contact? I'm on email almost all day, every day, <laughs> for good or ill. And my email is my name, A-N-N-E dot K-N-O-W-L-E-S at Maine with an E, M-A-I-N-E dot E-D-U. And Stephen, I would like to thank you for this wonderful opportunity to talk with a, a creative, curious geographer and cartographer about this work and I want to leave your audience with um, the correct information that this is not my work this is the work of a team of people which has included dozens over the course of the last eight years including many students so um, that's clearly represented in our book which is one reason I like to recommend it it was Ben Blackshear a student of mine at Middlebury College who came up with the frame of what I'm now calling the abacus of genocide. So many people deserve credit. 
and we can, and they can people can also find out more about your team and collaborators at the Holocaust Geographies Collaborative, um, and we've got a link to that in the show notes as well. So. I really encourage people to go and find out more about Anne's work and about her colleagues. Anne Knowles, thank you very much. It's been our pleasure. Take care. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMR podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any um, suggestions for topics that we should uh, cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. Um, you can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. Um, you can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. Um, you can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.